Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. And today, I'm sorry for not posting for a little bit, but today we are going to be finishing off the man with the nailed shoes. So yeah, if you remember last episode, we met Draper, who uh, was supposedly a friend of the victim. And then we heard all about how the victim was actually part of a gang that was kind of harassing Draper and Dra how Draper was kind of roped into forgery and stuff like that. And then he moved over here after his prison sentence to kind of get away from that life. And then the gang that he used to be in kind of tracked him down again. And the victim was a part of that, like I mentioned. And so now we know all about Draper's dirty past. <laughs> And he just, like, confessed all of this to Thorndike, which is kind of crazy. And so, yeah, let's just kind of continue up from there. They just left the house of Draper just after talking to him. And, uh, yeah, with no more waffle, let's jump right in. A very singular history, this, Jervis, he said, when, having wished the sergeant goodnight, we stepped out onto the dark road. What do you think of it? I hardly know what to think, I answered. But, on the whole, it seems rather against Draper than otherwise. He admits that he is an old criminal, and it appears that he was being persecuted and blackmailed by the man Hearn, which is the victim, by the way. It is true that he represents Jezzard as being the leading spirit and prime mover in the persecution, but we have only his word for that. Hearn was in lodgings near him, and was undoubtedly taking the most active part in the business, and it is quite possible, and indeed probable, that Hearn was the actual deus ex machina. Thorndike nodded. Yes, he said. That is certainly the line the prosecution will take if we allow the story to become known. Ha! What is this? We're going to have some rain. Yes, and wind, too. We're in for an autumn gale, I think. And that, said Thorndike, may turn out to be an important factor in our case. How can the weather affect your case? I asked in some surprise. But as the rain suddenly descended in a pelting shower, my companion broke into a run, leaving my question unanswered. On the following morning, which was fair and sunny after the stormy night, Dr. Burroughs called for my friend. He was on his way to the extemporized mortuary to make the post-mortem examination of the murdered man's body. Thorndike, having notified the coroner that he was watching the case on behalf of the accused, had been authorized to be present at the autopsy. But the authorization did not include me, and as Dr. Burroughs did not issue any invitation, I was not able to be present. I met them, however, as they were returning, and it seemed to me that Dr. Burroughs appeared a little huffy. <laughs> A little huffy. That's a fun way to describe someone. Just just think about it. Like some, some really authoritative, smart-looking doctor named Dr. Burroughs. You see him, he just looks a little huffy. <laughs> he just looks a little, you know, <laughs> he's kind of pouting, you know. That, that's kind of the image that kind of brings to my mind. I like that saying, a little huffy. I'm going to start saying that more often in my life because that makes me laugh. <laughs> Your friend, said he in a rather injured tone, is really the most outrageous stickler for forms and ceremonies that I've ever met. Thorndike looked at him with an amused twinkle and chuckled indulgently. Here was a body, Dr. Burroughs continued irritably, found under the circumstances clearly indicative of murder and bearing a knife wound that clearly divided the arch of the aorta, in spite of which I assure you that Dr. Thorndike insisted on weighing the body and examining every organ, lungs, liver, stomach, and brain, yes, actually the brain, as if there had been no clue whatever to the cause of death. And then, as a climax, he insisted on sending the contents of the stomach in a jar, sealed with our respective seals, in charge of a special messenger to Professor Copland for analysis and report, I thought he was going to demand an examination for the turbocle bacillus, but he didn't. Which, concluded Dr. Barrows, suddenly becoming sourly facetious, was an oversight, for, after all, <laughs> the fellow may have died of consumption. <laughs> Thorndike chuckled again, and I murmured that the preparations appeared to have been somewhat excessive. Not at all, was the smiling response. You are losing sight of our function. We are the expert and impartial umpires, and it is our business to ascertain, with scientific accuracy, the cause of death. The prima facie, if that's how you pronounce it, appearances in this case, suggest that the deceased was murdered by Draper, and that is the hypothesis advanced. But that is no concern of ours. It is not our function to confirm an hypothesis suggested by outside circumstances, but rather, on the contrary, to make certain that no other explanation is possible. And that is my invariable practice. No matter how glaringly obvious the appearances may be, I refuse to take anything for granted. Dr. Burroughs received this statement with a grunt of dissent, but the arrival of his dog cart put a stop to further discussion. 
Thorndyke was not subpoenaed for the inquest. Dr. Burroughs and the sergeant having been present immediately after finding the body, his evidence was not considered necessary, and moreover, he was known to be watching the case in the interests of the accused. Like myself, therefore, he was present as a spectator, but as a highly interested one, for he took very complete shorthand notes of the whole of the evidence and the coroner's comments. I shall not describe the proceedings in detail. The jury, having been taken to view the body, trooped into the room on tiptoe, looking pale and awestricken, and took their seats, and thereafter, from time to time, directed glances of furtive curiosity at Draper as he stood, pallid and haggard, confronting the court with a burly rural constable on either side. The medical evidence was taken first. Dr. Burroughs, having been sworn, began, with sarcastic emphasis, to describe the conditions of the lungs and liver, until he was interrupted by the coroner. Is all this necessary? The latter inquired. I mean, is it material to the subject of the inquiry? I should say not, replied Dr. Burroughs. It appears to me to be quite irrelevant, but Dr. Thorndyke, who was watching the case for the defense, thought it was necessary. I think, said the coroner, you had better give us only the facts that are material. The jury want you to tell them what you consider to have been the cause of death. They don't want a lecture on pathology. The cause of death, said Dr. Burroughs, was a penetrating wound of the chest, apparently inflicted with a large knife. The weapon entered between the second and third ribs on the left side close to the sternum or breastbone. It wounded the left lung and partially divided both the pulmonary artery and the aorta, the two principal arteries of the body. Was this injury alone sufficient to cause death? The coroner asked. Yes, was the reply, and death from injury to these great vessels would be practically instantaneous. Could the injury have been self-inflicted? So far as the position and nature of the wound are concerned, replied the witness, self-infliction would be quite possible. But since death would follow in a few seconds at the most, the weapon would be found either in the wound or grasped in the hand, or at least quite close to the body. But in this case, no weapon was found at all, and the wound must therefore certainly have been homicidal. Did you see the body before it was moved? Yes, it was lying on its back, with the arms extended and the legs nearly straight, and the sand in the neighborhood of the body was trampled, as if a furious struggle had taken place. Did you notice anything remarkable about the footprints in the sand? I did, replied Dr. Burroughs. They were the footprints of two persons only. One of these was evidently the deceased, whose footmarks could be easily identified by the circular rubber heels. The other footprints were those of a person, apparently a man, who wore shoes or boots, the soles of which were studded with nails. And these nails were arranged in a very peculiar and unusual manner, for those on the soles formed a lozenge or diamond shape, and those on the heel were set out in the form of a cross. Have you ever seen shoes or boots with the nails arranged in this manner? Yes, I have seen a pair of shoes which I am informed belong to the accused. The nails in them are arranged as I have described. Would you say that the footprints of which you have spoken of were made by these shoes? No, I could not say that. I can only say that, to the best of my belief, the pattern on the shoes is similar to that in the footprints. That was the sum of Dr. Burroughs' evidence, and to all of it Thorndyke listened with an immovable countenance, though with the closest attention. Equally attentive was the accused man, though not equally impassive. Indeed, so great was his agitation that presently one of the constables asked permission to get him a chair. The next witness was Arthur Jezzard. He testified that he had viewed the body, and identified it as that of Charles Hearn, and that he had been acquainted with the deceased for some years, but knew practically nothing of his affairs. At the time of his death, the deceased was lodging in the village. Why did he leave the yacht? The coroner inquired. Was there any kind of disagreement? Not in the least, replied Jezzard. He grew tired of the confinement of the yacht and came to live ashore for a change, but we were the best of friends, and he intended to come with us when we sailed. When did you see him last? On the night before the body was found, that is, last Monday. He had been dining on the yacht, and we put him ashore about midnight. He said as we were rowing him ashore that he intended to walk home along the sands as the tide was out. He went up the stone steps by the watch house, and turned at the top to wish us good night. That was the last time I saw him alive. Do you know anything of the relations between the accused and the deceased? The coroner asked. Very little, replied Jezzard. Mr. Draper was introduced to us by the deceased about a month ago. I believe they had been acquainted for some years, and they appeared to be on excellent terms. There was no indication of any quarrel or disagreement between them. What
what time did the accused leave the yacht on the night of the murder? About 10 o'clock. He said that he wanted to get home early, as his housekeeper was away, and he did not like the house to be left with no one in it. This was the whole of Jezzard's evidence, and was confirmed by that of Leach and Pitford. Then, when the fisherman had deposed to the discovery of the body, the sergeant was called, and stepped forward, grasping a carpet bag, and looking as uncomfortable as if he had been the accused instead of a witness. He described the circumstances under which he saw the body, giving the exact time and place with official precision. You have heard Dr. Burrow's description of the footprints? The coroner inquired. Yes, there were two sets. One set were evidently made by the deceased. They showed that he entered St. Bridget's Bay from the direction of Port Marston. He had been walking along the shore just about high water mark, sometimes above and sometimes below. Where he had walked below high water mark, the footprints had, of course, been washed away by the sea. How far did you trace the footprints of the deceased? About two-thirds of the way to Sundersley Gap. Then they disappeared below the high water mark. Then, later in the evening, I walked from the gap into Port Marston, but could not find any further traces of deceased. He must have walked between the tide marks all the way from Port Marston to beyond Sundersley. When the footprints entered St. Bridget's Bay, they became mixed up with the footprints of another man, and the shore was trampled for a space of a dozen yards as if a furious struggle had taken place. The strange man's tracks came down from the shepherd's path and went up it again, but owing to the hardness of the ground from the dry weather, the tracks disappeared a short distance off the path, and I could not find them again. What were these strange footprints like? inquired the coroner. They were very peculiar, replied the sergeant. They were made by shoes armed with smallish hobnails, which were arranged in a diamond-shaped pattern on the soles and in a cross on the heels. I measured the footprints carefully and made a drawing of each foot at the time. Here, the sergeant produced a long notebook of funeral aspect, and having opened it at a marked place, handed it to the coroner, who examined it attentively, and then passed it on to the jury. From the jury, it was presently transferred to Thorndyke, and looking over his shoulder, I saw a very workmanlike sketch of a pair of footprints with the principal dimensions inserted. Thorndyke surveyed the drawing critically, jotted down a few brief notes, and returned the sergeant's notebook to the coroner, who, as he took it, turned once more to the officer. Have you any clue, sergeant, to the person who made these footprints? he asked. By way of reply, the sergeant opened his carpet bag, and, extracting therefrom a pair of smart but studly made shoes, laid them on the table. These shoes, he said, are the property of the accused. He was wearing them when I arrested him. They appear to correspond exactly to the footprints of the murderer. The measurements are the same, and the nails with which they are studded are arranged in a similar pattern. Would you swear that the footprints were made with these shoes? asked the coroner. No, sir, I would not, was the decided answer. I would only swear to the similarity of size and pattern. Had you ever seen these shoes before you made the drawing? No, sir, replied the sergeant. And then he related the incident of the footprints in the soft earth by the pond, which led him to make the arrest. The coroner gazed reflectively at the shoes, which he held in his hand, and from them to the drawing. Then, passing them to the foreman of the jury, he remarked, well, gentlemen, it is not for me to tell you whether these shoes answer to the description given by Dr. Burroughs and the sergeant, or whether they resemble the drawing which, as you have heard, was made by the officer on the spot and before he had seen the shoes. That is a matter for you to decide. Meanwhile, there is another question that we must consider. He turned to the sergeant and asked, Have you made any inquiries as to the movements of the accused on the night of the murder? I have, replied the sergeant, and I find that on that night... The accused was alone in the house, his housekeeper having gone over to Eastwich. Two men saw him in the town about ten o'clock, apparently walking in the direction of Sundersley. This concluded the sergeant's evidence, and when one or two more witnesses had been examined without eliciting any fresh facts, the coroner briefly recapitulated the evidence and requested the jury to consider their verdict. Thereupon a solemn hush fell upon the court, broken only by the whispers of the jurymen as they consulted together and the spectators gazed in awed expectancy from the accused to the whispering jury. I glanced at Draper, sitting huddled in his chair, his clammy face as pale as that of the corpse in the mortuary, his hands tremulous and restless, and, scoundrel as I believed him to be, I could not but pity the abject misery that was written large all over him, from his damp hair to his incessantly shifting feet. The jury took but a short time to consider their verdict. At the end of five minutes, the foreman announced that they were agreed, and, in answer to the coroner's formal inquiry, stood up and replied, We find that the deceased met his death by being stabbed in the chest by the accused man, Alfred Draper. That is a verdict of willful murder, said the coroner, and he entered it accordingly in his notes. 
The court now rose. The spectators reluctantly trooped out. The jurymen stood up and stretched themselves, and two constables, under the guidance of the sergeant, carried the wretched draper in a fainting condition to a closed fly that was waiting outside. I was not greatly impressed by the activity of the defense, I remarked maliciously as we walked home. Thorndyke smiled. You surely did not expect me to cast my pearls of forensic learning before a coroner's jury, said he. I expected that you have something to say on behalf of your client, I replied. As it was, his accusers had it all their own way. And why not? he asked. Of what concern to us is the verdict of the coroner's jury? It would have seemed more decent to make some sort of defense, I replied. My dear Jervis, he rejoined, you do not seem to appreciate the great virtue of what Lord Beaconsfield so felicitously called a policy of masterly inactivity, and yet that is one of the great lessons that a medical training impresses on the student. That may be so, said I, but the result up to the present of your masterly policy is that a verdict of willful murder stands against your client, and I don't see what other verdict the jury could have found. Neither do I, said Thorndyke. I had written to my principal, Dr. Cooper, describing the stirring events that were taking place in the village, and had received a reply from him instructing me to place the house at Thorndyke's disposal, and to give him every facility for his work. In accordance with which edict, my colleague took possession of a well-lighted, disused stable loft, and announced his intention of moving his things into it. Now, as these things included the mysterious contents of the hamper that the housemaid had seen, I was possessed with a consuming desire to be present at the flitting, and I do not mind confessing that I purposely lurked about the stairs in the hopes of thus picking up a few crumbs of information. How secretive. Thorndike has a weird hamper full of things that he went out and got one day, and we don't know what it is. And I don't think we have any clue as to what it is either, so... Man, what's in the box? <laughs> but Thorndyke was one too many for me. A misbegotten infant in the village having been seized with inopportune convulsions, I was compelled, most reluctantly, to hasten to its relief, and I returned only in time to find Thorndyke in the act of locking the door of the loft. A nice, light, roomy place to work in, he remarked, as he descended the steps, slipping the key into his pocket. Yes, I replied, and added boldly, what do you intend to do up here? Work up the case for the defense, he replied, and, as I have now heard all that the prosecution have to say, I shall be able to forge ahead. This was vague enough, but I consoled myself with a reflection that in a very few days I should, in common with the rest of the world, be in possession of the results of his mysterious proceedings. For, in view of the approaching assizes, preparations were being made to push the case through the magistrate's court as quickly as possible in order to obtain a committal in time for the ensuing sessions. Draper had, of course, been already charged before justice of the peace and evidence of arrest taken, and it was expected that the adjourned hearing would commence before the local magistrates on the fifth day after the inquest. Wow, that's fast. <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect nowadays there's a little bit more bureaucracy. <laughs> I don't know how the legal system works in England, but hey, who knows? I just think the five days is real quick for a murder case. This is like ace attorney levels of quick, like you have one day to get your case ready or something. <laughs> The events of these five days kept me in a positive ferment of curiosity. In the first place, an inspector of the Criminal Investigation Department came down and browsed about the place in company with the sergeant. Then Mr. Bashfield, who was to conduct the prosecution, came and took up his abode at the Cat and Chicken. But the most surprising visitor was Thorndyke's laboratory assistant, Poulton, who appeared one evening with a large trunk and a sailor's hammock and announced that he was going to take up his quarters in the loft. As to Thorndyke himself, his proceedings were beyond speculation. From time to time, he made mysterious appearances at the windows of the loft, usually arrayed in what looked suspiciously like a nightshirt. Sometimes I would see him holding a negative up to the light, at others manipulating a photographic printing frame, and once I observed him with a paintbrush and a large gallipot, on which I turned away in despair and nearly collided with the inspector. Dr. Thorndyke is staying with you, I hear, said the latter, gazing earnestly at my colleague's back, which was presented for his inspection at the window. Yes, I answered. Those are his temporary premises. That is where he does his bedevilments, I suppose, the officer suggested. He conducts his experiments there, I corrected haughtily. That's what I mean, said the inspector, and as Thorndyke at this moment turned and opened the window, our visitor began to ascend the steps. I've just called to ask if I could have a few words with you, doctor, said the inspector, as he reached the door. Certainly, Thorndyke replied blandly. 
If you'll go down and wait with Dr. Jervis, I will be with you in five minutes. The officer came down the steps, grinning, and I thought I heard him murmur, Sold, but this may have been an illusion. However, Thorndyke presently emerged, and he and the officer strode away into the shrubbery. Imagine, a police officer walks up to your door and just is like, Hey, I want to talk to you. And then you uh, casually walk out your door and lead him into the shrubbery. <laughs> Like, it's just a vague thing. It just sounds like they're gonna walk off into, like, a pile of sticks or, like, a bush and just, like, discuss things there, you know? <laughs> like, they just walk off into the shrubbery. They're just sitting in a bush, you know? <laughs> what the inspector's business was, or whether he had any business at all, I never learned. But the incident seemed to throw some light on the presence of Polton and the sailor's hammock. And this reference to Polton reminds me of a very singular change that took place about this time in the habits of this usually stead and sedate little man, who, abandoning the somewhat clerical style of dress that he ordinarily affected, broke out into a semi-nautical costume, in which he would sally forth every morning in the direction of Port Marston. And there, on more than one occasion, I saw him leaning against a post by the harbour, or lounging outside a waterside tavern in earnest and amicable conversation with sundry nautical characters. Hmm, so the, the only clues we have so far as to what Thorndike is doing is one, it has something to do with photos, because it mentioned that he was seen messing around with photos and the photo frames and stuff like that um, up in his loft. And also he has his assistant going over to kind of the docks and the pier, you know, the, the sailor's kind of area, dressed as a sailor and kind of chatting up the people there. So they're definitely going undercover and getting some information. And uh, I don't know what the photos are of, but I guess we'll see. I'm kind of curious. <laughs> That's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> On the afternoon of the day before the opening of the proceedings, we had two new visitors. One of them, a grey-haired spectacled man, was a stranger to me, and for some reason I failed to recall his name, Copland, though I was sure I had heard it before. The other was Anstey, the barrister who usually worked with Thorndyke in cases that went into court. I saw very little of either of them, however, for they retired most immediately to the loft, where, with short intervals for meals, they remained for the rest of the day, and, I believe, far into the night. Thorndike requested me not to mention the names of his visitors to anyone, and at the same time apologize for the secrecy of his proceedings. But you're a doctor, Jervis, he concluded, and you know what professional confidences are, and you will understand how greatly it is in our favor that we know exactly what the prosecution can do, while they are absolutely in the dark as to our land of defense. I assured him that I fully understood his position, and with this assurance he retired, evidently relieved, to the council chamber. The proceedings, which opened on the following day, and at which I was present throughout, need not be described in detail. The evidence for the prosecution was, of course, mainly a repetition of that given at the inquest. Mr. Batchfield's opening statement, however, I shall give it length, inasmuch it summarized very clearly the whole of the case against the prisoner. The case that is now before the court, said the counsel, involves a charge of willful murder against the prisoner Alfred Draper, and the facts, insofar as they are known, are briefly these. On the night of Monday, the 27th of September, the deceased, Charles Hearn, dined with some friends on board the yacht Otter. About midnight he came ashore and proceeded to walk towards Sundersley along the beach. As he entered St. Bridget's Bay, a man, who appears to have been lying in wait and who came down the shepherd's path, met him, and a deadly struggle seems to have taken place. The deceased received a wound of a kind calculated to cause almost instantaneous death, and apparently fell down dead. And now, what was the motive of this terrible crime? It was not robbery, for nothing appears to have been taken from the corpse. Money and valuables were found, as far as is known, intact. Nor, clearly, was it a case of casual affray. We are consequently driven to the conclusion that the motive was a personal one, a motive of interest or revenge. And with this view, the time, the place, and the evident deliberateness of the murder are in full agreement. So much for the motive. The next question is, who was the perpetrator of this shocking crime? And the answer to that question is given in a very singular and dramatic circumstance, a circumstance that illustrates once more the amazing lack of precaution shown by persons who commit such crimes. The murderer was wearing a very remarkable pair of shoes, and those shoes left very remarkable footprints in the smooth sand. And those footprints were seen and examined by a very acute and painstaking police officer, Sergeant Payne, whose evidence you will hear presently. The sergeant not only examined the footprints, he made very careful drawings of them on the spot, on the spot, mind you, not from memory, and he made very exact measurements of them, which he duly noted down. And from those drawings and those measurements, those telltale shoes have been identified, 
and are here for your inspection. And now, who is the owner of those very singular, those almost unique shoes? I have said that the motive of this murder must have been a personal one, and behold, the owner of those shoes happens to be the one person in the whole of this district who could have had a motive for compassing the murdered man's death. Those shoes belonged to and were taken from the foot of the prisoner, Alfred Draper. And the prisoner, Alfred Draper, is the only person living in this neighborhood who was acquainted with the deceased. It has been stated in evidence at the inquest that the relations of these two men, the prisoner and the deceased, were entirely friendly. But I shall prove to you that they were not so friendly as has been supposed. I shall prove to you by the evidence of the prisoner's housekeeper that the deceased was often an unwelcome visitor at the house, that the prisoner often denied himself when he was really at home and disengaged, and in short, that he appeared constantly to shun and avoid the deceased. One more question, and I have finished. Where was the prisoner on the night of the murder? The answer is that he was in a house little more than half a mile from the scene of the crime. And who was with him in that house? Who was there to observe and testify to his going forth and coming home? No one. He was alone in the house. On that night, of all nights, he was alone. Not a soul was there to rouse at the creak of a door or the tread of a shoe, to tell as whether he slept or whether he stole forth in the dead of night. Such are the facts of this case. I believe that they are not disputed, and I assert that, taken together, they are susceptible of only one explanation, which is that the prisoner, Alfred Draper, is the man who murdered the deceased, Charles Hearn. Oof, man. I'm in like a legal drama, man. Dude. Oh, man. Uh, so I kind of forgot this, but in the beginning of the story, they described Thorndike not as a detective, but as a medical lawyer. So a medical man and a lawyer. He is both. So in short, this man is insane. And so <laughs> the medical background helps him a lot with his deductions. But also, the lawyer side of him helps him actually effectively defend people in court and helps him to effectively build cases against the other person. Like, he knows courtly strategy. Like, he knew not to speak up on the inquest because he knew that that would let the prosecution show them their hand, while the defense, on the other hand, didn't say a word because they wanted to keep it secret. I trust this man. I would absolutely get this guy as my lawyer because he definitely knows what he's doing. Immediately on the conclusion of this address, the witnesses were called, and the evidence given was identical with that at the inquest. The only new witness for the prosecution was Draper's housekeeper, and her evidence fully bore out Mr. Bassfield's statement. The sergeant's account of the footprints was listened to with breathless interest, and at its conclusion, the presiding magistrate, a retired solicitor once well known in criminal practice, put a question which interested me as showing how clearly Thorndike had foreseen the course of events, recalling as it did his remark on the night when we were caught in the rain. Did you, the magistrate asked, take these shoes down to the beach and compare them with the actual footprints? I obtained the shoes at night, replied the sergeant, and I took them down to the shore at daybreak the next morning, but unfortunately there had been a storm in the night, and the footprints were almost obliterated by wind and rain. When the sergeant had stepped down, Mr. Bashfield announced that that was the case for the prosecution. He then resumed his seat, turning an inquisitive eye on Anstey and Thorndike. The former immediately rose and opened the case for the defense with a brief statement. The learned counsel for the prosecution, said he, has told us that the facts now in the possession of the court admit of but one explanation, that of the guilt of the accused. That may or may not be, but I shall now proceed to lay before the court certain fresh facts, facts, I may say, of the most singular and startling character, which will, I think, lead to a very different conclusion. I shall say no more, but call the witnesses forthwith, and let the evidence speak for itself. The first witness for the defense was Thorndike, and as he entered the box, I observed Poulton take up a position close behind him with a large wicker trunk. Having been sworn and requested by Anstey to tell the court what he knew about the case, he commenced without preamble. About half past four in the afternoon of the 28th of December, I walked down Sundersley Gap with Dr. Jervis. Our attention was attracted by certain footprints in the sand, particularly those of a man who had landed from a boat, had walked up the gap, and presently returned, apparently, to the boat. As we were standing there, Sergeant Payne and Dr. Burroughs passed down the gap with two constables carrying a stretcher. We followed at a distance, and as he walked along the shore, we encountered another set of footprints, those which the sergeant has described as the footprints of the deceased. We examined these carefully, and endeavored to frame a description of the person by whom they had been made. And did your description agree with the characters of the deceased? The magistrate asked. 
Not in the least, replied Thorndyke, whereupon the magistrate, the inspector, and Mr. Bashfield laughed long and heartily. When we turned into St. Bridget's Bay, I saw the body of the deceased lying on the sand close to the cliff. The sand all around was covered with footprints, as if a prolonged, fierce struggle had taken place. There were two sets of footprints, one set being apparently of those of the deceased, and the other those of a man with nailed shoes of a very particular and conspicuous pattern. The incredible folly of wearing such shoes indicated me to look more closely at the footprints, and then I made a surprising discovery that there had, in reality, been no struggle, that, in fact, the two sets of footprints had been made at different times. At different times? The magistrate exclaimed in astonishment. Yes, the interval between them may have been one of hours or one only of seconds, but the undoubted fact is that the two sets of footprints were made, not simultaneously, but in succession. But how did you arrive at that fact? The magistrate asked. It was very obvious when one looked, said Thorndyke. The marks of the deceased man's shoes showed that he repeatedly trod in his own footprints, but never in a single instance did he tread in the footprints of the other man, although they covered the same area. The man with the nailed shoes, on the contrary, not only trod in his own footprints, but with equal frequency in those of the deceased. Moreover, when the body was removed, I observed that the footprints in the sand on which it was lying were exclusively those of the deceased. There was not a sign of any nail-marked footprint under the corpse, although there were many close around it. It was evident, therefore, that the footprints of the deceased man were made first, and those of the nailed shoes afterwards. Oh, that's really smart. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Does that mean that someone framed him? I mean, definitely. He, he definitely got framed. I mean, that's obvious. But, like, I'm not sure exactly how the framing went about, especially if the footprints of the so-called struggle were actually done separately. I don't know how that kind of plays into the fact that Draper is actually innocent, but I really like it, and it's really cool. <laughs> As Thorndike paused, the magistrate rubbed his nose thoughtfully and the inspector gazed at the witness with a puzzled frown. The singularity of this fact, my colleague resumed, made me look at the footprints yet more critically, and then I made another discovery. There was a double track of the nailed shoes, leading apparently from and back to the shepherd's path. But on examining these tracks more closely, I was astonished to find that the man who had made them had been walking backwards. That, in fact, he had walked backwards from the body to the shepherd's path, had ascended it for a short distance, then turned around and returned, still walking backwards, to the face of the cliff near the corpse. And there, the tracks vanished altogether. On the sand at this spot were some small inconspicuous marks which might have been made by the end of a rope, and there were also a few small fragments which had fallen from the cliff above. Observing these, I examined the surface of the cliff, and at one spot about six feet above the beach, I found a freshly rubbed spot which there were parallel scratches such as might have been made by the nailed sole of a boot. I then ascended the shepherd's path and examined the cliff from above, and here I found, on the extreme edge, a rather deep indentation, such as would be made by a taut rope, and, on lying down and looking over, I could see, some five feet from the top, another rubbed spot with very distinct parallel scratches. You appear to infer, said the chairman, that this man performed these astonishing evolutions and was then hauled up the cliff? That is what the appearances suggested, replied Thorndyke. The chairman pursed his lips, raised his eyebrows, and glanced doubtfully at his brother magistrates. Then, with a resigned air, he bowed to the witness to indicate that he was listening. That same night, Thorndyke resumed, I cycled down to the shore through the gap, with a supply of plaster of Paris, and proceeded to take plaster molds of the more important of the footprints. Here, the magistrates, the inspector, and Mr. Bashfield, with one accord, sat up at attention. Sergeant Payne swore quite audibly and I experienced a sudden illumination respecting a certain basin and kitchen spoon which had so puzzled me on the night of Thorndyke's arrival. As I thought that liquid plaster might confuse or even obliterate the prints in sand, I filled up the respective footprints with dry plaster, pressed it down lightly, and then cautiously poured water onto it. The molds, which are excellent impressions, of course show the appearance of the boots which made the footprints, and from these molds I have prepared casts which reproduce the footprints themselves. The first mold that I made was that of one of the tracks from the boat up to the gap, and of this I shall speak presently. I next made a mold of one of the footprints which have been described as those of the deceased. Have been described, exclaimed the chairman. 
The deceased was certainly there, and there were no other footprints, so if they were not his, he must have flown where he was found. I will call them the footprints of the deceased, replied Thorndyke imperturbably. I took a mold of one of them, and with it, on the same mold, one of my own footprints. Here is the mold, and here is a cast from it. He turned and took from the triumphant Polton, who had tenderly lifted them out of the trunk in readiness. On looking at the cast, it will be seen that the appearances are not such as would be expected. The deceased was five foot nine inches high, but it was very thin and straight, weighing only nine stones six pounds, as I ascertained by weighing the body, whereas I am five feet eleven and weigh nearly thirteen stone. But yet the footprint of the deceased is nearly twice as deep as mine. That is to say, the lighter man has sunk into the sand nearly twice as deep as the heavy man. The magistrates were now deeply attentive. They were no longer simply listening to the despised utterances of a mere scientific expert. The cast lay before them with the two footprints side by side. The evidence appealed to their senses and was proportionately convincing. That is very singular, said the chairman, but perhaps you can explain the discrepancy? I think I can, replied Thorndyke, but I should prefer to place all the facts before you first. Undoubtedly that would be better, the chairman agreed. Pray proceed. There was another remarkable peculiarity about these footprints, Thorndike continued, and that was their distance apart, the length of the stride. I measured the steps carefully from heel to heel, and found them only nineteen and a half inches. But a man of Hearn's height would have had an ordinary stride of about thirty-six inches, more if he was walking fast. Walking with a stride of nineteen and a half inches, he would look as if his legs were tied together. I next proceeded to the bay, and took two molds from the footprints of the man with the nailed shoes, a right and a left. Here is a cast from the mold, and it shows very clearly that the man was walking backwards. How does it show that? asked the magistrate. There are several distinctive points. For instance, the absence of the usual kickoff at the toe, the slight drag behind the heel showing the direction in which the foot was lifted, and the undisturbed impression of the sole. You have spoken of molds and casts. What's the difference between them? A mold is a direct and therefore reversed impression. A cast is the impression of a mold, and therefore a facsimile of the object. If I pour liquid plaster on a coin, when it sets, I have a mold, a sunk impression, of the coin. If I pour melted wax into the mold, I obtain a cast, a facsimile of the coin. A footprint is a mold of the foot. A mold of the footprint is a cast of the foot. And a cast from the mold reproduces the footprints. Thank you, said the magistrate. Then your molds from these two footprints are really facsimiles of the murderer's shoes and can be compared with these shoes which have been put in evidence? Yes, and when we compare them, they demonstrate a very important fact. What is that? It is that the prisoner's shoes were not the shoes that made those footprints. A buzz of astonishment ran through the court, but Thorndike continued stolidly. The prisoner's shoes were not in my possession, so I went on to Barker's Pond, on the clay margin of which I had seen the footprints actually made by the prisoner. I took molds of those footprints and compared them with these from the sand. There are several important differences, which you will see if you compare them. To facilitate the comparison, I have made transparent photographs of both sets of molds to the same scale. Now, if we put the photograph of the mold of the prisoner's right shoe over that of the murderer's right shoe and hold the two superimposed photographs up to the light, we cannot make the two pictures coincide. They are exactly of the same length, but the shoes are of different shape. Moreover, if we put one of the nails in one photograph over the corresponding nail in the other photograph, we cannot make the rest of the nails coincide. But the most conclusive fact of all, from which there is no possible escape, is that the number of nails in the two shoes is not the same. In the sole of the prisoner's right shoe, there are 40 nails. In that of the murderer, there are 41. The murderer has one nail too many. There was a deathly silence in the court as the magistrates and Mr. Bashfield poured over the molds and the prisoner's shoes and examined the photographs against the light. Then the chairman asked, Are these all the facts, or have you something more to tell us? He was evidently anxious to get the key to this riddle. There is more evidence, your worship, said Anstey. The witness examined the body of the deceased. Then, then turning to Thorndyke, he asked, You were at the post-mortem examination? I was. Did you form any opinion as to the cause of death? Yes, I came to the conclusion that death was occasioned by an overdose of morphia. A universal gasp of amazement greeted this statement. Then the presiding magistrate protested breathlessly, But there was a wound which we have been told was capable of causing instantaneous death. Was that not the case? 
There was undoubtedly such a wound, replied Thorndyke. But when that wound was afflicted, the deceased had already been dead from a quarter to a half an hour. This is incredible, examined the magistrate. But no doubt you can give us your reasons for this amazing conclusion? My opinion, said Thorndyke, was based on several facts. In the first place, a wound inflicted on a living body gapes rather widely owing to the retraction of the living skin. The skin of a dead body does not retract, and the wound consequently does not gape. This wound gaped very slightly, showing that death was recent, I should say within half an hour. Then a wound on the living body becomes filled with blood, and blood is shed freely on the clothing. But the wound on the deceased contains only a little blood clot. There was hardly any blood on the clothing, and I had already noticed that there was none on the sand where the body had lain. And you consider this quite conclusive? The magistrate asked doubtfully. I do, answered Thorndyke. But there was other evidence, which was beyond all question. The weapon had partially divided both the aorta and the pulmonary artery, the main arteries of the body. Now, during life, these great vessels are full of blood at a high internal pressure, whereas after death they become almost empty. It follows that, if this wound had been inflicted during life, the cavity in which those vessels lie would have become filled with blood. As a matter of fact, it contained practically no blood, only the merest oozing from some small veins, so that it is certain that the wound was inflicted after death. The presence and nature of the poison I ascertained by analyzing certain secretions from the body, and the analysis enabled me to judge that the quantity of the poison was large, but the contents of the stomach were sent to Professor Copland for a more exact examination. Is the result of Professor Copland's analysis known? The magistrate asked Anstey. The professor is here, your worship, replied Anstey, and is prepared to swear to having obtained over one grain of morphia from the contents of the stomach. And as this, which is in itself a poisonous dose, is only the unabsorbed residue of what was actually swallowed, the total quantity taken must have been very large indeed. Thank you, said the magistrate. And now, Dr. Thorndyke, if you have given us all the facts, perhaps you will tell us what conclusions you have drawn from them? The facts which I have stated, said Thorndyke, appear to me to indicate the following sequence of events. The deceased died about midnight on September 27th from the effects of a poisonous dose of morphia. How or by whom administered, I offer no opinion. I think that his body was conveyed in a boat to Saundersley Gap. The boat probably contained three men, of whom one remained in charge of it, one walked up the gap and along the cliff towards St. Bridget's Bay, and the third, having put on the shoes of the deceased, carried the body along the shore to the bay. This would account for the great depth and short stride of the tracks that had been spoken of as those of the deceased. Having reached the bay, I believe that this man laid the corpse down on his tracks and then trampled the sand in the neighborhood. He next took off the deceased's shoes and put them on the corpse. Then he put on a pair of boots or shoes which he had been carrying, perhaps hung round his neck, and had been prepared with nails to imitate draper's shoes. In these shoes he again trampled over the area near the corpse. He then walked backwards to the shepherd's path, and from it again, still backwards to the face of the cliff. Here his accomplice had lowered a rope, by which he climbed up to the top. At the top he took off the nailed shoes, and the two men walked back to the gap, where the man who had carried the rope took his confederate on his back, and carried him down to the boat to avoid leaving the tracks of stockinged feet. The tracks that I saw at the gap certainly indicated that the man was carrying something very heavy when he returned to the boat. But why should the man have climbed a rope up the cliff when he could have walked up the shepherd's path? The magistrate asked. Because, replied Thorndyke, there would have been a set of tracks leading out of the bay without a corresponding set leading to it, and this would have instantly suggested to a smart police officer, such as Sergeant Payne, a landing from a boat. Your explanation is highly ingenious, said the magistrate and appears to cover all the very remarkable facts. Have you anything more to tell us? I love how at this point the magistrate isn't even, like, questioning or trying to refute anything. He's just kind of like, oh yeah, tell me more. Like, <laughs> yes, keep talking. <laughs> no, your worship, was the reply. Excepting, here he took from Poulton the last pair of molds and passed them up to the magistrate, that you will probably find these molds of importance presently. As Thorndike stepped from the box, for there was no cross-examination, the magistrates scrutinized the molds with an air of perplexity, but they were too discreet to make any remark. When the evidence of Professor Copland, which showed that an unquestionably lethal dose of morphia must have been swallowed, had been taken, the clerk called out the, to me, unfamiliar name of Jacob Gummer. Thereupon, an enormous pair of brown dreadnought trousers from the upper end of a smack boy's head and shoulders protruded, walked into the witness box. 
Jacob admitted at the outset that he was a smackmaster's apprentice, and that he had been hired out by his master to one Mr. Jezzard as a deckhand and cabin boy of the yacht Otter. Now, Gummer, said Anstey, do you remember the prisoner coming on board the yacht? Yes, he has been on board twice. The first was about a month ago. He went for a sail with us then. The second time was on the night when Mr. Hearn was murdered. Do you remember what sort of boots the prisoner was wearing for the first time he came? Yes, they were shoes with a lot of nails in the soles. I remember them because Mr. Jezzard made him take them off and put on a canvas pair. What was done with the nailed shoes? Mr. Jezzard took him below to the cabin. And did Mr. Jezzard come up on deck again directly? No, he stayed down in the cabin about ten minutes. Do you remember a parcel being delivered on board from a London bootmaker? Yes, the postman brought it about four or five days after Mr. Draper had been on board. It was labeled Walker Bros, Boot and Shoemakers, London. Mr. Jezzard took a pair of shoes from it, for I saw them on the locker in the cabin the same day. Did you ever see him wear them? No, I'd never see him again. Have you ever heard sounds of hammering on the yacht? Yes, the night after the parcel came, I was on the quay alongside, and I heard someone hammering in the cabin. What did the hammering sound like? It sounded like a cobbler hammering in nails. Have you seen any boot nails in the yacht? Yes, when I was clearing up the cabin the next morning. I found a hobnail on the floor in a corner by the locker. Were you on board the night when Mr. Hearn died? Yes, I'd been ashore, but I come aboard about half past nine. Did you see Mr. Hearn go ashore? I see him leave the yacht. I had turned into my bunk and gone to sleep when Mr. Jezzard calls down to me, We're putting Mr. Hearn ashore, says he. And then, he says, we're a-going for an hour's fishing. You needn't sit up, he says. And with that, he shuts the scuttle. Then I got up and slid back the scuttle and put my head out, and I see Mr. Jezzard and Mr. Leach helping Mr. Hearn across the deck. Mr. Hearn looked as if he was drunk. They got him into the boat, a rare job they had, and Mr. Pitford, what was in the boat already, he pushed off. And then I popped my head in again, because I didn't want them to see me. Did they row to the steps? No, I put my head out again when they were gone, and I heard them row around on the yacht, and then pulled towards the mouth of the harbor. I couldn't see the boat, because it was a very dark night. Very well. Now I'm going to ask you about another matter. Do you know anyone of the name of Poulton? Yes, replied Gummer, turning a dusky red. I've just found out his real name. I thought he was called Simmons. Tell us what you know about him, said Anstey, with a mischievous smile. Well, said the boy, with a ferocious scowl at the bland and smiling Poulton, one day he come down to the yacht when the gentleman had gone ashore. I believe he'd seen him go, and he offers me ten shillin' to let him see all the boots and shoes we got on board. I didn't see no harm, so I turns out the whole lot in the cabin for him to look at. When he was looking at him, he asks me to fetch a pair of mine from the foxhole. So I fetches him. When I come back, he was pitching the boots and shoes back into the locker. Then presently he nips off, and when he was gone, I looked over the shoes, and then I found there was a pair missing. They were an old pair of Mr. Jezzard's, and what made him nick him is more than I can understand. Would you know those shoes if you saw them? Yes, I should. Are these the pair? Anstey handed the boy a pair of dilapidated canvas shoes, which he seized eagerly. Yes, these is the shoes that he stole, he exclaimed. Anstey took them back from the boy's reluctant hands and passed them up to the magistrate's desk. I think, said he, that if your worship will compare these shoes with the last pair of molds, that you will have no doubt that these are the shoes which made the footprints from the sea to Sundersley's Gap and back again. The magistrates, together, compared the shoes and the molds amidst a breathless silence. At length, the chairman laid them down on the desk. It is impossible to doubt it, said he. The broken heel and the tear in the rubber sole, with the remains of the checkered pattern, make the identity practically certain. As the chairman made this statement, I involuntarily glanced around to the place where Jezzard was sitting. But he was not there. Neither he, nor Pitford, nor Leach. Taking advantage of the preoccupation of the court, they had quietly slipped out of the door. But I was not the only person who had noted their absence. The inspector and the sergeant were already in earnest consultation, and a minute later they too hurriedly departed. The proceedings now speedily came to an end. After a brief discussion with his brother magistrates, the chairman addressed the court. The remarkable and, I may say, startling evidence, which has been heard in this court today, if it has not fixed the guilt of this crime on any individual, has at any rate made it clear to our satisfaction that the prisoner is not the guilty person, and he is accordingly discharged. Mr. Draper, I have the great pleasure in informing you that you are at liberty to leave the court, and that you do so entirely clear of all suspicion. And I congratulate you very heartily on the skill and ingenuity of your legal advisors, but for which the decision of the court would, I am afraid, have been very different. 
That evening, lawyers, witnesses, and a jubilant and grateful client gathered round a truly festive board to dine and fight over again the battle of the day. But we were scarcely halfway through our meal when, to the indignation of the servants, Sergeant Payne burst breathlessly into the room. They've gone, sir, he remarked, addressing Thorndyke. They've given us the slip for good. Why, how can that be? asked Thorndyke. They're dead, sir, all three of them. Dead? we all exclaimed. Yes, they made a burst for the yacht when they left the court, and they got on board and put out to sea at once, hoping, no doubt, to get clear, as the light was just failing. But they were in such a hurry that they did not see a steam trawler that was entering, and was hidden by the pier. Then, just at the entrance, as the yacht was creeping out, the trawler hit her amidships and fairly cut her in two. The three men were in the water in an instant, and were swept away in eddy behind the north pier, and before any boat could put out to them, they had all gone under. Jezzard's body came up on the beach just as I was coming away. We were all silent and a little odd, but if any of us felt regret at the catastrophe, it was at the thought that three such cold-blooded villains should have made so easy an exit. And to one of us, at least, the news came as a blessed relief. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was such a good ending to the story. Dude, holy crap. My goodness, dude. Oh, oh, that was so good. That turned into like a legal drama where Thorndike was just laying out the facts and laying out all the evidence that he had done. And obviously this wouldn't happen in a court today. But oh my goodness, is it good? <laughs> so yeah, basically they had just listened to Draper's evidence and then Thorndike goes off, collects all of his evidence. He kind of goes secretly quiet for like five days while he's kind of gathering all of the stuff that he wants to think about and gets photos and like, the molds taken and everything. And then everything is revealed in court. <laughs> and Thorndike just absolutely mows the prosecution. And oh my goodness, that was so dramatic. I need to read another one of these stories by the same author. <laughs> this is actually part of a, a book that has a bunch of stories in it. So I will definitely be reading another thing by R. Austin Freeman because, oh my goodness, that was so good. Uh, so anyways, yeah, <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun. And I just have a couple of things to say. So first of all, if you liked this podcast or if you have some feedback or any recommendations for what I should read, I would suggest that you email me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. It's also in the show notes. And also, um, if you're on any podcast app or service or website where you can engage with the podcast, like like or follow or heart or comment or leave a review, I would appreciate that because it would really help this podcast grow and expand and help more people hear this amazing story because, oh my goodness, was that a good story. Like... <laughs> Man, that was really good. I'm so sorry for making you wait a little bit longer for this last part, but it happened, and here we are. So, thirdly, there are those two links in the show notes that we know and love. One is just for directly donating to me via PayPal, and the other link is to become my patron if you ever feel the need to do so. <laughs> so, anyways, um, so anyways, I have obviously had an amazing week, and I hope that you guys do too. So, I'll see you guys, uh, later. Bye.